you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. On vacation this last week, we, uh, we stayed in the Airbnb, but my in-laws and the rest of their family stayed in these RVs uh, right on the, the Cheat River in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia. Uh, and when I say nowhere, I mean like nowhere. Um, it, it was interesting to watch this camp culture kind of unfold these These people who don't know each other, but who immediately form a community that lasts for four days, and then as soon as the vacation's over, they disappear and and don't really keep keep up with each other. The the first day we got there was before the crowds got there, and Josiah was miserable. He had to sit under a pop-up tent with me and my family and uh, just kind of be. Internet doesn't work out where we are. We've like... Uh, we've, we've rationed the downloaded things from Netflix so that we can have uh, something to hold on to. And we think, how are we going to do this for six days? But on day two, the masses arrived, and with them, tons of kids. And it went from this miserable, horrible, dreary experience to watching our kids just run out in a field with these kids they never met and, and to delight and wonder in them. When we got back to the house, Josiah um, made a friendship thing. It wasn't a bracelet, it wasn't a necklace. Uh, It was these uh, paper plate with a heart on it cut in half. And he took one the next day and said, this is for my best friend. This this kid that he had met for two hours in the middle of the RV camp is now his best friend. And and to watch them delight in one another was great, but but it also did something else. It gave me a break from managing a six-year-old. We have not had that break very much for 16, 17 months now, right? Uh, We delight in our children. We love them. but it can be tiring. And so they went out and played the whole time with these other kids and ran kind of feral. We didn't even worry if they had shoes on. We just let them go. And, and we got to rest and to delight and, and, and to find some renewal that would let us flourish. I spent a lot of my time in the mornings reading and studying. Uh, to get to spend time reading uh, Richard Hayes' book, Reading with the Grain of Scripture, without uh, like this constant, atten- constant need for attention, it was really freeing because it, it's this this deep book about how we engage scripture. And it hit at just the right time for me to be able to sit and and spend time in it and to spend time in the text. It got me thinking about how we treat the Bible as literature. Uh, If I was going to talk to you about Romeo and Juliet and I said, it's the story of these two people who drink poison, you would find it lacking, right? If we wanted to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird and said, well, it's the story of Bob Yule who uh, assaults these two kids on the street, you wouldn't really feel like it was to kill a mockingbird, would you? If we were going to talk about the outsiders and say, it's the story about Johnny and Pony who are hanging out in this farm out in the wilderness, it wouldn't be that story. If I was going to tell you the story of Avengers through uh, 20-some movies, if I just said, hey, one of them dies at the end, uh, it would not be the whole story, would it? But we tend to do to the biblical text exactly that. Uh, we pull out a little piece and drop it out of its context and, and we make a flannel graph about it, right? Or we uh, read that story and meditate on it. And, and there's something good and beautiful about a deep look at a passage. But we often do that deep look uh, outside the context it's situated in. 
Scripture is this anthology, right, with various authors who are all inspired by the Spirit to, to give us this living word from God. We have uh, narrative, we have uh, poetry, we have prose discourse, we have uh, these ancient Hebrew writings, and we have these modern Greco-Roman writings. We have uh, good Greek and good Hebrew and bad Greek and bad Hebrew. But, but together, there is, I don't want to call God an editor, but in a sense, God's Spirit has united the whole thing together as one story. Even though you can turn to Proverbs and read it on its own, uh, to read Proverbs within the fullness of Scripture uh, illumines it very differently. We can, we can read the Jesus story without the Old Testament, but if we uh, bring it together with the fullness of Scripture and say, like, this is how Jesus connects to Israel's story, it, it makes a huge difference. And today's Old Testament reading is the same way. If we just jump right into this desire for a king and, and divorce it from its context, it, it loses some of its richness. Their story has started all the way back at creation. Uh, God formed humanity in his image, and they were great, and he gave them a, a task, and yet they failed at that. They sinned, they're banished from the garden. And the rest of the story is God trying to, to bring uh, together uh, his people. To, to redeem them and rescue them. He, he does this primarily through the story of Israel in the Old Testament. We, we encounter it in, in the patriarchs and matriarchs that uh, then finds its fullness in the uh, exodus from Egypt and their wandering in the wilderness. We, we, we see how they're led by people, but uh, the, the whole goal is this allegiance to God. We, we come to the stories of uh, Joshua and Judges where they actually enter into this land that they've been promised and begin to experience the fullness of what, uh, what may be Yahweh's promises were for them. And then we have to see the story about how they keep failing at it. This, this judges cycle where uh, leader after leader is problematic. Even the good ones have their own issues. And, and it's this cycle of people who are supposed to bring about goodness for Israel who lead them astray. Uh, the book of Ruth gives us kind of a bridge from from there to where we are today. At the beginning of the book of Ruth, it said, in the time where the judges ruled. And we read about how bad things were for Israel, where, where they had to flee famine, where uh, people had no hope, where we wondered, where is God in the midst of all this? And by the end, we read the story of uh, Ruth and uh, Boaz having Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of David, uh, and that sets us right into the texts of Samuel and Kings, these texts that we're going to spend uh, the next weeks in, these texts where we wrestle with what does it mean uh, to give our allegiance to someone or to something. We, we dive headfirst into the story of Samuel, this uh, maybe most virtuous character in all of Scripture who, who seeks the Lord's heart and desires to, to authentically bring his word to the people of Israel and who feels deeply hurt. The people are demanding a king just like our neighbors. We want a strong person who will lead us and who will keep us safe. Samuel probably feels this even more because the people they're rejecting, uh, the people they're rejecting are his sons. Like, we like you, Samuel, but Joel and Abijah, they're pretty terrible. We don't have a lick of hope for them. So what we want is a king like all these strong people around us. And so Samuel comes to Yahweh and says, what do we do? How do, 
How do we deal with these wretched people who want to reject the judges and reject you? And, and Yahweh says, give them what they want. Give them a king. And this, this flips the whole way Israel has functioned on its head. The, the judges had been simply the people who were supposed to mediate conflict and lead people into battle. The, the whole premise of the judge was that uh, the king is Yahweh himself. That, that Yahweh is the one who uh, is the the head of state, uh, the Lord of, the, of, of all, and the judge was simply an administrative position and a, a battle position. And they said, no, we want a king, which, which in some ways doesn't look that very different, does it? Someone to do the administrative stuff and to lead us into battle. Uh, but the, the, the nuance there that the king gets your allegiance is where all things start to fall apart. The, the monarchy will now become, in many ways, the didactic center of Scripture as, as the rest of Israel's story is centered on the failures of its monarchy, on how even the best King David is a disaster. How Israel will lose all the promises that God had given them because of the kings. These kings who lead them to worship false gods, who, who trample upon others, who... who who cause great harm, and in doing so, uh, are going to reshape Israel's story all the way through the picture of Jesus. When, when we're in the intertestamental period between the time of the exile and the time of Jesus, uh, there's these stories about what Israel hopes for. Uh, in, in some of your Bibles, you have what's called the Apocrypha in the middle. It's these stories that, uh, in many ways, tell us the hope of Israel. And in Tobit, it talks about what our hope is, is that ultimately this Messiah is going to come and going to set up the new kingdom of Israel and rebuild the temple better than it ever was under Solomon. And they're going to reign, and all the Jews from all the world are going to come to Israel, and we will uh, worship God where he will once again come into the temple. And so this becomes the dominant hope for, for the people at the time of Jesus. They're looking for a new warrior king to lead them. They want... David and his mighty men and what they get is a Jesus who suffers on a cross and they miss so much of it because they don't understand how, how their vision of what a king should be uh, is what has caused so much of their trouble and it starts right here in this very, this very passage that Brad read today they reject Samuel and his sons and demand a king Yahweh says fine Go tell them that you'll give it to them. But he also says, let, let them know what it's going to be like. Let them know what their new reality is. He will take your sons and will use them for his chariots and his cavalry and his runners for his chariot. He will use them as his commanders of troops of 1,000 and troops of 50 or to do his plowing and his harvesting or to make weapons or parts for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, or bakers. He will... Take your best fields, vineyards, and olive groves and give them to his servants. He'll give one-tenth of your grain and his vineyards to his officials and servants. He will take your male and female servants along with the best of your cattle and donkeys and make them do his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and then yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out because the king you choose for yourselves. But on the day, the Lord won't answer you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel and they said no. There must be a king. You know, we're not far out of uh, Torah. 
where we've had all the laws of Yahweh laid out for the people of Israel. And this is the small part of what you need to give back to Yahweh. Here's how we're going to do worship. Here's how we're going to do sacrifices. Here's how you're going to orient your life to me. And when this move to a monarchy, all that shifts. Instead of uh, a small gift to Yahweh, the, the king is going to begin to take and take and take. The king is going to create a system of production that, that enslaves the people and, and breaks down their very uh, societal structures. The king is going to use up all that is yours and eventually is going to enslave you. And the story of Samuel and Kings continues showing us how that plays out. We have a, a brief period of sort of good under David. A, a, a smidge of a second where he's not sinning and the people aren't sinning and they have all the land. But that's like two chapters out of the whole story of the monarchy. And that's what people hold on to as the, the good old days. We're going to see uh, how... Uh, the monarchy fractures the kingdom once more, how it's divided into two, how in the north we have no good kings, in the south we only have like three uh, pretty good kings. And it's going to shape the whole rest of the story. And, and in some ways it shapes our story if we stop and pause long enough. If we begin to ask the question about what does Israel's desire for a monarchy mean for us? We we don't uh, live as a, um, a religious state anymore. The church is not uh, our civil government. We don't, um, we don't desire someone to rule over us. And yet we have to begin to ask the questions, who is our Lord? Who would function as the thing that has our allegiance and authority, who, who we would give our best to? when we interview candidates for uh, pastoral uh, ministry and we ask them if they, uh, or if they come to be recommended to our SPR, we ask the question, uh, what does it mean for you that Jesus is Lord and Savior? And most candidates can talk at length about the theology of suffering on the cross and death and resurrection and then flounder when you ask them, you never said anything about Jesus as Lord. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of your life? In many ways, as Jesus ascended to the throne to sit and reign at God's right hand and to rule, uh, we come back to this time before the kings where we question, is our allegiance to something on earth or is it to the Lord who reigns on high? And it, I think in many ways, the question for us is so much more insidious because it's really easy to see if your allegiance is to Solomon or to Josiah, to uh, Jeroboam or Hezekiah. It's harder to see where our allegiance lies and what we allow to be Lord of our lives, whether it's a person, a thing, or an ideal. What, what is it that we uh, orient our entire being towards? The thing that we uh, structure our finances and time, the thing that uh, stirs our heart. I'm sure if we took a moment and all wrote it down, we would all have different answers uh, but at the, the center of all of it should be our answer that Christ is our King. The Lord who deserves our allegiance and yet who treats us so kindly. The one who doesn't uh, take from us and enslave us, but the one who receives our worship and then gives us the gifts of his spirit. The one who doesn't enslave us, but instead who sets us free through grace and mercy. Not the one who takes and takes and takes, but the one who gives and gives and gives. 
Israel couldn't imagine a monarchy that looks like Jesus's. A, a dying and rising humble servant. One who would not take a throne or rebuild the physical temple, but one who would offer gifts back to his people through, through suffering and self-giving love. Friends, as we spend the rest of the series, at each week we're going to have to ask the question, who or what is Lord of our lives? Who has received our allegiance or what has received our allegiance? And if at any point it's anything other than Jesus Christ as Lord, we need to stop to seek, seek answers for how we can rid that thing from, from our worship, from being the, the idol that consumes us. On that vacation, I got to spend a lot of time in these texts of the kings to, to situate them within their context and then read just how bad they are. These flawed individuals who trade allegiance to Christ for power and prestige, who uh, go from being a community that, uh, that worshiped God to a community that was enslaved and, and harmed. And my desire for each of us is that we are not enslaved by anything in this world, and instead we are set free to worship and to love our Lord. Do we desire to be like everybody else? Do we reject our God as our King? Or do we trust in Him with our whole heart, leaning not on ourselves but on Him, seeking the Spirit to fill us and make us whole, uh, letting God's grace lavish over us and teach us what it is to love and to be? Are we the church? Are we just a group of people who gather together for some other reason? You know, I, I loved hearing your stories when I first came to Andover. And I've loved getting to know many of you online throughout the pandemic and, and hear about the ways in which you do trust Christ as your Lord. Pandemic has forced many of us to ask questions about uh, where our allegiances are and what is important to us. And uh, to hear so many of you talk about how your faith has been strengthened amidst all of this has been beautiful. I have about six weeks to dive into this and ask the hard questions, to, to root out anything uh, that shouldn't be there, and uh, then to be sent forth in mighty ways, worshiping the one true God, the, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our King and our hope. Would you pray with me? Loving Christ. Your preferred self-designation was son of man. And for we know that with that comes this, this vision of you reigning right now at the right hand of God the Father. This vision of a kingdom that has no borders. A God who, who reigns and cares deeply for his people. Lord, we confess that so often we let things creep in to receive our allegiance, to have our heart. Some in very obvious and clear ways and some in ways that we don't even notice. 
Would you help open our eyes to those places and and help us uh, drive them out that we might worship you fully and trust in you wholly? That we might receive your grace and be made perfect in love and, and point people to your kingdom and to your reign. That we might might bring a hurting world before your throne of grace to be set free from the burdens of that which will consume us in this world and set free to love and to worship you. We pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit.